Okay, so I want to welcome everybody. This is um, Reverend Anna Jones, and I'm joined today with my husband, Philip Jones. I'm an interfaith minister, um, and I'm also a holistic healer and a modern-day mystic. And Philip Jones is a licensed professional counselor. Um, he's also a hospice chaplain, which is what his uh, full-time work is. Um, but he's been doing much with uh, rites of passage and pilgrimage, and we've both been uh, running and operating our um, company, Questing Spirit LLC, which is um, f focused not only just on my ministry work, but also on leading retreats and pilgrimages. Um, and we began that uh, together in the early part of 2000, uh, 2001, um, prior to moving to Hawaii. So there's a whole history that we have with Questing Spirit. Um, we've been married and teaching for a lot longer than that. Uh, it'll soon be 19 years. It'll be 19 years later this fall that we've been married and um, doing a lot of different classes and workshops and events and uh, speaking engagements and tours and pilgrimages, etc. together over the course of that entire period of time, and I'm very happy that we are joined here together again today to present um, this next teleconference, which is a part of a series of teleconferences that we've been offering. Um, the particular title of this one today is The Magdalene, the Grail, and You. The Magdalene, the Grail, and You. And um, it's uh, part of a series of teleconferences. Uh, all of the rest of the series that's been done so far is already up on the website, mysticalfrance.com, where the registration for all of the teleconferences are on the teleconferences page. So you can, if you miss any in the series and you're interested in listening to them, um, you can go and listen to the others that are already posted there or register for the others that are still yet to come. Uh, there's two parts to this particular teleclass and to everyone in this series. The first part is um, a teaching that we're giving on the subject, on the theme. So again, today's theme is the Magdalene, the Grail, and you. And the second part is um, a uh, kind of a pre-retreat travelogue, a pre-tour, pre-retreat uh, travelogue for our upcoming Mystical France retreats that we're going to be leading in September uh, and October of this year. And today, specifically, uh, we are going to be talking about our Mystical France South retreat, which pertains to our theme, because everything we share about the retreats uh, in each of these teleclasses pertains to the theme of the whole thing. So we're going to be talking about the retreat that pertains to Mary Magdalene and the Grail. So um, I am, uh, like I said, just very, um, very excited to be presenting this and doing this again with my husband. And uh, Philip and I have a lot to share. We have so much to share on these subjects that that's why we decided to do it in a series. This is not going to be the only one of our teleclasses. We're going to be talking about Mary Magdalene. Uh, there's so much to share and tell in, in regards to the depth of the things that we have to share regarding Mary Magdalene that there's going to be uh, this teleconference today, which is the grail of Mary Magdalene and you. And then there's also um, in um, a I think there's going to be another one on the uh, in two weeks, and then there's going to be another one on Mary Magdalene two weeks after that. So in about four weeks from now, there's going to be Mary Magdalene and um, the Sacred Feminine and the Great Goddess. That'll be in, in about four weeks from then. And then on July the 22nd, there'll be a teleconference that'll be exclusively on Mary Magdalene, actually, um, and that uh, is called She Who Knew All, Mary Magdalene, She Who Knew All, and that'll be on July the 22nd as, as a part of this series, which is 
the actual uh, feast day or celebration of Mary Magdalene worldwide. So if there's anything you hear in this one about Mary Magdalene <clears throat> you, and you want to know more, there's more information coming uh, because we are also got a lot to share with you today about the Grail. But I wanted to start, first of all, um, we're going to start talking about uh, the Grail and, um, and, of course, that will lead us into talking about Mary Magdalene um, and the Holy Grail and, our, and, and you and our, our personal journey with it. Uh, so I wanted to start the whole thing off today with a really great quote um, that we found in the Encyclopedia of Psychology and Religion. So this is a Holy Grail quote that um, comes from the Encyclopedia of Psychology and Religion, and here's what the quote says. The Holy Grail is one of the most profound and complex psychological and historical symbols. In terms of mythology, literature, and popular culture, the Grail mythos deeply permeates Western culture as a symbol of perfection, struggle, purity, and sacred quest. So we really like that quote, and we thought that it kind of sums up some of the points that we want to make today, especially the, the symbol of the Grail as being a symbol of perfection, purity, and sacred quest. So whenever you talk about the Grail, the Grail there's always the connection with the sacred quest. So in, back in 2012, um, Philip and I have long time, ever since we first got married, we've long uh, felt moved and deeply connected to Grail legends and store, Grail stories and, and just felt deeply moved by those myths. Um, so we began learning more and more about it and um, we started getting very drawn and attracted uh, to the region of southern France that we're going to be talking about much later today in, in the retreat portion, but we're also going to be talking about in regards to history pertaining to the Grail and Mary Magdalene, because you can't talk about the Grail and Mary Magdalene without talking about southern France. So in 2012, we went on a sacred quest. Um, we've done many sacred journeys and sacred quests to other sacred sites and places, but we went on a sacred quest. We called it even a Grail quest back in 2012 to southern France. And um, we had a, uh, an amazing series of uh, just um, you know, connections that we were making with places and so much that we learned and so, in so many ways that things that we explored and discovered. But I had a personal experience that I wanted to start with and share with everybody very quickly. Um, tell my story because this is how it pertains to me, right? Um, there's the Grail, there's the Magdalene, and there's how it pertains to you, how it pertains to you personally. So this is a personal story that I wanted to share with. When we were on that Grail quest in southern France back in 2012, um, I was, uh, I had, before we even left, actually, I had started to receive dreams, which is not uncommon when you're working with the Grail or Mary Magdalene. Any of these powerful uh, sacred mysteries, uh, if you start um, questing and questioning uh, and exploring deeper in a personal quest of any kind, even just an inner quest, uh, regarding these sacred things, it's not uncommon to start to receive dreams. So prior to the journey that we took in southern France, 
experience in 2012, um, I had actually received a dream. And the dream was telling me to uh, remember something and to make sure that I didn't forget, but it was in French. And I couldn't, I, I was writing down the words and I was even trying to work with uh, my friend who uh, was the, our, our French language interpreter to help me try to figure out what the words were. And I couldn't quite figure out exactly what the French words that I was supposed to remember were. So I figured, well, if this is really pertaining to this, uh, you know, this deep mystery and this deep quest, uh, then uh, it'll it'll return to me and I'll understand more about it and maybe it'll happen when I'm when I'm there. And so when we were on this modern day Grail quest back in 2012, I did um, have an experience and it did return to me outside of that dream. Um, we were at a place, a very special special place in southern France in the Languedoc region of southern France that's called the Seat of Isis. And um, it's an ancient oracle site, uh, very ancient. Um, uh, nobody knows exactly how old it is or wh- where it dates back to, but it's at least dating back to ancient Celtic times. And um, there's a special seat there. It's like an oracle seat. And I sat on that seat and I did a meditation because I'm a modern-day mystic and I have a lot of mystical experiences and mystical messages and encounters that I receive. And when I sat on the seat, I got one very strong, clear message. And it said, don't forget Chateau Comtal. And so that time I really heard it. It was Chateau Comtal. Don't forget Chateau Comtal. And the reason being is because that Chateau Comtal, and the voice went on to say that Chateau Comtal is a grail castle. And once a grail castle, always a grail castle. So that was the message. It said, don't forget Chateau Comtal. It, was, it is a grail castle, and once a grail castle, always a grail castle. And so I immediately, even though it was not planned in our quest itinerary at that time, I immediately knew we had to go to Chateau Comtal, and I knew where it was. Uh, I knew that it was in the, the ancient city of, of, of Carcassonne, but we hadn't really put that into itinerary, so I needed to kind of move with the message and, 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 and alter things and change things around in our schedule so that we could follow spirit and follow how we were being divinely led and follow those, in, that, follow that, those instructions. Also, what I got from that was that places that the Holy Grail have touched and come into contact with, and again, we're going to talk more about well, what is the grail and what has it been known to be and what has it been seen to be? But regardless, I wasn't trying to get into that kind of scrutiny with this message. I was more just trying to follow the guidance of the message and really trying to have it be revealed to me because that's the part of having the personal experiences, the personal experiences about it really um, trying to be personally revealed and, and, and realizing it ourselves, not just learning about it, but having some realization that we discover. So I was trying to just open to the realization of that. And we changed the schedule, and we, we went to Chateau Comtal, um, and I, I, I realized that these places um, where the grail has been, and again, we'll talk about what, the, what all the different ideas of the grail is, but according to this message, this is a grail castle, and once a grail castle, always a grail castle. So I understood that where it has been has been vibrationally altered, and that the energy signatures of it remain, even if it um, does not remain in any kind of physical presence, that the spiritual vibration, the energetic signatures of it remain in these sacred sites where it has been. So when we went to Chateau Comtal, 
Um, I walked in, first of all, just to make sure that um, I, you know, confirmed that it was something that the whole group was meant to be doing because I didn't know if it was just me or the whole group. And, and I went to these two trees that are in the center of the courtyard of this castle. So basically it's a castle within an ancient uh, city, that, a city that actually looks like Camelot when you see pictures of the city. There are actually pictures of it that are up on our mysticalfrance.com website. And when I went in there, um, I sat down at the base of these trees and I received more guidance. Um, I received a, another very distinct message. So it was a series of messages that started to come through about um, you know, bringing the whole group in and, 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 and doing a meditation uh, and very specific instructions for the meditation. Um, and so we did the meditation and everybody had their own unique experience during that meditation. Um, not everybody got messages like I do because I'm just a, a, a mystic that receives a lot of auditory, um, clairaudient uh, types of messages as well as clairvoyant types of imagery. Um, so I, I did receive another message, though, that still continues to affect me uh, and I'm still continuing to work with to this day uh, in, in gaining further insight, uh, especially about um, the grail and all of its meanings and all that it can represent. One of the things that I um, was doing during the meditation, I had a blissful experience during the meditation, and then at the very end, again, I heard the same voice speak to me, and that voice said simply, um, forever you will journey of this there is no doubt. The grail will lead you inward, upward, and out. And I opened my eyes immediately in the meditation, which is not something that I normally do. I don't normally just kind of suddenly bring myself out of a meditation. And I just kind of looked up at the sky and I said, maybe rolled my eyes and I said, really? You're giving me a grail riddle? It was like the last thing that I could have expected, actually. Um, I really, really did not expect to receive a grail riddle. In fact, I was just uh, shocked by it. Um, and, and, and then the voice returned and said, yes, because the grail is a mystery. And I said, well, why does it have to be so mysterious? You know, why, why does it have to be so mysterious? Mysterious. And the only answer that I got back, which is a very deep and profound answer, is that without the mystery, love would not be alluring or enticing. So without the mystery, love would not be alluring or enticing. So that in and of itself is powerful enough that without the mystery, love would not be alluring or enticing to kind of say that you know, I, mean, I got it immediately that there's some part of the grail mysteries that need to be remained a mystery and it's part of fueling us on our quest and keeping love a uh, dynamic moving uh, force uh, in our life is the reason for uh, mysteries uh, to happen and to take place and to be even uh, ongoing uh, for, for that very reason. But then the riddle itself, I continue to work with uh, forever we will journey, forever you will journey of this there is no doubt the grail will lead you inward, upward, and out. Um, and then the next day, uh, I immediately had my immediate interpretations, and that's what the mind does, right? The mind uh, comes up with the immediate interpretations. But then the next day, when we went to uh, this uh, cave in the Gorge de Galamos, again, we're in the southern region of France in an area called the Languedoc area, and the Gorge de Galamos, um, there's an amazing cave that's there that um, legend has it, local lore and legend has it, that Mary Magdalene traveled all throughout the the region of southern France and um, that she carried with her 
sacred objects. She carried with her sacred writings and sacred teachings. Um, you know that she carried much with her as she was traveling uh, through the region, and that she taught in some of the caves throughout the Languedoc region. And some of these caves are sacred caves to Mary Magdalene throughout the Languedoc region. And this is one of the caves where local legend, local lore has it that she she taught. And um, so the next day, after receiving the Grail Riddle, um, we literally went to the Gorge de Galmos, and I realized that we actually enacted some of that. We hiked in to the gorge and um, into the cave, and then we hiked up the, 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 the stairs that are cut into the rock there uh, in order to journey back out um, and to go on to the next part of the quest. So I actually had a, a synchronicity the next day at this cave that we're where it's legend for Mary Magdalene to have taught, um, where we went, where the Grail led me inward, uh, upward, and out, literally uh, in that physical experience. But it's also metaphorical, and I still continue to get um, insight into it every day. And one of the other interpretations that I'm getting from that, um, the Grail will lead you inward, upward, and out, is that in order to really truly understand these mysteries, because again, when we're talking about the Grail, we're talking about Mary Magdalene, these kind of sacred mysteries and sacred subjects here. Um, In order to really understand these mysteries, we have to go deep within. That's one of the interpretations is you have to go deep within. The grail will lead you inward. That I have to go deep within. Upward. The grail will lead me upward. Inward and upward. Which to me I'm also interpreting as um, taking my consciousness up to another level. That it will require me to raise my consciousness, raise my vibration, raise my thinking in order to understand these things. I have to look inward in order to understand these great mysteries. And I have to look upward. I have to go upward. I have to um, raise my consciousness, raise my uh, thoughts, and out. Um, so the grail will lead you inward, upward, and out. And the out part that I'm uh, also working with interpretation-wise on this, and again, this isn't the only interpretations I'm working with. I'm getting depth from every way, every angle of, of looking at it. But the out part is getting out of the box of um, how the mind normally likes to think of these things and preconceived ideas and out of the um, you know, old limiting thoughts and old ideas and old beliefs, especially uh, false ideas and false beliefs and getting out of those things and not staying stuck in those things. So I just wanted to share that um, personal experience uh, since it's the Grail, the Magdalene, and you. So um, the you part means that they personally have a connection with us, right? That's one experience, one personal story I can share with you of a personal connection. Um, that I've made Uh, and there's many others uh, as well and um, I would invite everybody listening to this call whether you could go on any kind of sacred pilgrimage pertaining to or any kind of sacred quest pertaining to the Grail or the Magdalene or not that you can go inward, upward, and out. Um, and you can follow where the grail is leading you, uh, but you got to go inward, upward, and out. Um, and so try to take that um, translation and, and uh, kind of interpretation that I just gave of that and see if you can apply it yourself in, in your own approach to these divine mysteries. And I feel like everybody who registers for this call, and we received a number of registrations for this teleconference, um, they have some kind of 
some kind of connection that they feel personally. And so that's my story. I want to give Philip now a chance to come in and tell um, a little bit of personal, uh, a little bit of personal, of gr- Philip, what does the grail mean to you what, uh, on your personal level? What does the grail mean to you? Well, um, we were just talking about this a little earlier, and I think um, when I saw the movie Camelot, which has been quite a number of years ago, um, maybe when I was in my 20s, I'm not sure when it came out, but the thing is um, I grew up in the South, in the Deep South, where there was an era of segregation, and just immediately I knew that was wrong. I also um, was grew up in a kind of a fundamentalist church, and when I got a little older and began to meet people of different faiths and cultures, I just inwardly knew that was wrong. And when I uh, touched into the Arthurian legends and uh, saw the ideal, you know, King Arthur and the, the Knights of the Round Table, you know, the, the symbolism of a round table with each person, each knight sitting at it representing a different gift, could be a different culture, faith, etc. The round table honors all contributions, all diversities, and all for one and one for all, that type of thing. And I shared with Anna that when I saw the movie Camelot, you know, it's, it's a tragedy in one sense because King Arthur has his destiny, and of course Merlin sees that, and he gathers the knights, and he creates this spirit and the Round Table, and then there's the falling out, and Guinevere and Lancelot, and and at the end, of, toward the end of the movie, he's there, and it's like it's a wasteland. His whole Camelot, the whole idea of a better world or a balanced world where masculine and feminine and different gifts or everything is honored had, had just fallen apart. And, and, and it's like we feel sometimes we look out and see where the world's going and just wonder. But um, he's standing there in, in this tragedy, and then he looks and he sees this little boy, maybe a five-year-old boy, and the little boy's like got a stick, and he's, you know, like he's going to be a knight. And, and, and he realized, oh, my God, you know, there, there's hope. Somehow or other, what I created physically has crumbled, but but the ideal, and that's why he's called a once and future king. So that that's what moved me. And of course, when I began to learn about um, the fact that um, that um, the Arthurian legends are actually first written down in France in the 12th century, then I really began to go deeper into to that. And as Anna did when I when we went over there in 2012, I had many incredible connections with the legends and 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 the spirit of the legends you know we went to this one uh castle and one of down in southern france there are a number of castles that were used by the the cathars who through the knights templars also had a connection to the grail legends and just being up in this castle which was a, a sacred place and a place which honored love courtly love knighthood all of those things that we find inspiring and sacred just just deeply moved me and reinforced in me why the Grail legend is important to me. And it reinforced to me, too, because what happened in France in the 12th century, you know, in some sense was a tragedy as well, but it moved forward this ideal or, or idea of a, an, an era of communication, cooperation, interfaith dialogue, uh, multiculturalism, all of those things which once again are coming to the forefront in the 21st century. There's a resonance with 
the sixth century when the knights when Arthur was there, and the twelfth century when the uh, southern France and the Cathars were there, and the courtly love and the Arthurian legends arose, and in our time as well. So that takes me kind of into the history of uh, the Grail, and just going to speak a little bit about that. Um, it's said that in virtually every account of the Arthurian legends around the Grail, of course, there's many different ideas people have about what the Grail is, and we're going to talk about those in a few minutes. But in terms of King Arthur and, and the Grail, it's in almost every one of those accounts, the final goal of the quest for the Grail is to be the reestablishment or the transformation of the wasteland into paradise. So the idea of the wasteland, even T.S. Eliot wrote a, I think it was a poem called The Wasteland. Uh, Tennyson wrote about uh, the Arthurian legends and the idea that when we're out of balance, when the world's out of balance, especially with the masculine and the feminine, that eventually that manifests through Mother Nature. And in so many ways, the world becomes a wasteland, either through war, violence, an overbalance of the masculine or the feminine. It just doesn't work. And so the Grail Quest specifically if you look at what that was, the Knights of the Round Table, there was a, one, one day they were sitting at the Round Table and there was a vision of the chalice. And, of course, the chalice is coming down through two different traditions. One is through the Celtic tradition and one is through the Christian tradition. And in the Christian tradition, that was the cup that Jesus uh, drank from at the Last Supper, which they believe Joseph of Arimathea took to Britain. And so that Christian tradition is coming and the Celtic tradition is coming as well. And in the Celtic tradition, especially, the Holy Grail was said to be that which would bring healing and fruitfulness to the land. But in any event, the Knights of the Round Table had a vision of the Holy Grail and then it disappeared. And it was said that it disappeared because there was no one who really was capable to be the guardian. So it was like an inspiration for each one of those knights to go to find themselves, to find the best within themselves, to find the wholeness within themselves to represent, you know, Camelot, to represent a world in balance, a world in balance between the masculine and feminine, the different cultures and so forth and so on. So that was really what it was, and there was a seat at the table, an empty seat at the round table that no one would sit in until that one night was able to really reach what Jung would call individuation or someone might call enlightenment, but what specifically was returning the sacred feminine, the chalice, the holy grail, and most of the legends uh, around the, the knights of the round table uh, was kept in the castle, and the king was there, and his land was, was ravaged, and his land was desolate, and it was a wasteland, and someone had to come to give him hope again and to bring back the holy grail, which would mean a restoration of the feminine. So the first... Although these events took place in the 6th century, that was the time of King Arthur, who was a historical figure and a king of England who had great deeds. But really, the romance of the Grail, the legend of the Grail, the literary um, manifestations of the Grail took place in the 12th century in France, which most people don't really realize. The first legend, the first time Camelot was written about was in the 12th century in France. And it was a time when... People were, again, there are certain times in history when at that time the Roman Catholic Church was corrupt. You know, the church 
any organized anything is going to go through periods of corruption or or decline or whatever. At that time, the church was was very corrupt because it was caught up in politics and wealth and so forth. And people were really looking to break out of that medieval mindset uh, where everyone had their place and men were above women and Jews were here and Christians were here and all that. They really wanted to break out on the path of true spirituality, love, devotion, etc. And so the first uh, in the years between 1180 and maybe 1205, a number of uh, writings on the Grail legends were there. And in those times, books were extremely expensive. For what, so what happened is, instead of being written in Latin, which most of the scholarly books were at that time, it was written in the language of the people, the vernacular, the French people, and they were given as performances. They were read out loud, or they were given as performances, and people would come and they would hear this, and it really inspired a revolution at that time in France, especially in southern France. The whole tradition of courtly love and, and really romantic love as opposed to you're supposed to marry this person or that person or marry only within your station in life. A lot of things came out of that period of time. And a spiritual and cultural revolution began in the 12th century, which culminated in the Renaissance. And uh, it was suppressed, which we'll talk about a little later, but again, for me, um, the, the the Grail legends are there prior to, even prior to Christianity. They reached a high point at the time of Arthur in the 6th century. They reached another high point because the time was right in the 12th century. And I truly be- believe, because we live in a time, again, when we're confronting uh, racism and, and, and cultural wars and religious wars and so forth and so on, it's a time where we can literally, through climate change and so many other things or wars, the planet can go into a wasteland again, or we can take this inspiration, which the Grail represents individually and collectively, and and move forward. One of the things I love about your story um, as to, you know, what it means to you and then some of the stuff you just talked about is that it represents a symbol of hope. Exactly. And, um, you know, one of the things that we do when we work with the the Holy Grail um, in both our retreats and pilgrimages as well as if we're giving a talk of any kind or a teleconference such as this is we like to say we have to take it out of the box, right? Um, We have to take it out of, you know, the the, the confines of of limited ideas and look at all of what it is thought to be and um, all of what it's thought to represent. Um, So just in what you shared already, Philip, You've shared that, you know, the, the grail was thought to be a chalice, to be a cup, um, uh, the, perhaps even the cup that was used in the Last Supper. Right. Um, and you've also shared that the grail was a symbol for the divine feminine and the sacred feminine and the restoration of that sacred feminine uh, for healing of the imbalances in the world. Yes. Uh, so that's another very powerful, important thing that I think a lot of people miss when they're reading Grail Legends. Um, <clears throat> they sometimes just see it as a, uh, we talked about this before we got on the call, as a, just a, 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 a treasure hunt. You know, in fact, there's some movies out there that just kind of depict it as a treasure hunt uh, when it was so, about so much more. It was this, uh, it was a sacred object, um, and also it was seen as this symbol for the divine feminine or the sacred feminine that could restore balance to the land and restore balance once again, um, and also as this symbol of hope. 
know, that, 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 that there is divine power, divine um, mystery, uh, divine magic that can heal and uh, renew and bring about kind of even miraculous things. So it was a, a symbol of that too. But it was also, we also, we, we like to cover all of the things that the Grail is and um, historically uh, has been talked about because there's many legends, right? There's many legends, there's many stories, the famous ones, of course, are the ones you just touched upon. Um, but what are some of the other things that the Grail has historically been thought to be? Well, the Grail has also been thought to be a stone, and specifically the Philosopher's Stone. The Philosopher's Stone is a concept from uh, alchemy, and a lot of people misunderstand alchemy. Alchemy was really a quest for salvation, enlightenment, uh, wholeness, uh, around taking the four elements, earth, air, fire, water, metaphorically, and becoming a whole person. And the Philosopher's Stone was said to be that thing, that one phenomenon that could turn lead to gold, lead being the parts of us or the elements that are base and not very advanced, and gold being the gold standard, you might say. So it was seen as something which could inspire hope, which could, as you say, bring about grace or mystery in order to help a person reach uh, wholeness or enlightenment. That was the stone aspect. Another aspect uh, that some people think the grail, you know, because, again, as Anna said, a lot of times people are searching for it as a treasure and so forth. Um, that also ties into southern France, by the way. But a lot of people feel it's maybe a, a sacred text, uh, a holy uh, gospel or book that's been lost. And, and there have been, and we're going to touch on that a little bit later, there's been... In our own lifetime, a number of discoveries of ancient texts that uh, give throw different light on Christianity and on spirituality in general. So some people see the Grail as representing that. Uh, another pe other people see it as representing um, enlightenment, wholeness, or individuation. Uh, Carl Jung's wife wrote, along with another woman, a whole huge book. She spent most of her life or her adult life researching the grail and how it relates to one's development psychologically. Um, in addition to that, um, sacred union of masculine and feminine, we talked that a little, about that a little bit. A, a lot of people have related it within the Christian tradition to Mary Magdalene because she is a feminine figure in Christianity that uh, whatever she was, whether she was she was absolutely, without a doubt, from any quarter, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, very prominent disciple, very likely uh, had a lineage coming from Jesus. She was one of the prominent teachers after he passed away. So she's uh, seen in, from various points of view as representing the feminine in, in relation to the Christian tradition because... You mean after he ascended. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about that a little bit then. Okay. Um, so the, there's the, the connection to the Holy Grail representing the divine feminine and the sacred feminine. And um, then there's all of these other legends and stories that talk about the Holy Grail actually that Mary Magdalene is the Holy Grail, right? So there's these uh, this whole other series and groups of of stories and legends and lores that are myths out there regarding, and not myths in the sense of untrue, but myths in the sense of mythological, you know, myth, there's mystery, mystery around it, right? So 
around Mary Magdalene and possibilities of the legends of a of a holy bloodline that may have been descendants from Mary Magdalene and Yeshua, which is Christ or Jesus. The actual Aramaic name of Jesus is Yeshua. So Mary Magdalene, um, you know, could be one of the symbols of the Holy Grail, could be the Holy Grail also in some of the legends, and also legends of a holy bloodline that um, were descendants of uh, Mary Magdalene and Yeshua. So all of these um, things that we're talking about here today are things that um, are believed to be the Holy Grail. And there are some people that think exclusively that the Holy Grail is just one of those things and one of those things only. Like some people who believe it's just a chalice, it's just a cup, or it's just a stone, or it's just a a lost scripture, or it's just the, the quest for holiness and individuation, or it's just the divine feminine, the sacred feminine, the great goddess that's been lost, or it's just Mary Magdalene, or it's just the bloodline, and we don't limit it, right? And that's part of that grail message I received, too, that not limit things, to um, that the grail would lead me inward, upward, and out, to take this up to a higher level and out of the box. So we're going to talk about Mary Magdalene next, and we're going to try and like set the record straight and, and take her out of some of the boxes that she's been put in. But we're also going to try to be very careful to not put the Grail or Mary Magdalene into another box, you know, because I think it's very important not to put these limitations by drawing these conclusions and saying, well, we know what the Grail is, or we know what the Magdalene is, um, and we know who she is and everything about her, because that's the point the other part of my message was trying to make, And the point is that there's a mystery around all of this, and that mystery is meant to remain right now because that mystery creates a loving energy. It creates a a loving drive and and, and movement uh, that, that entices us and is alluring for us to uh, to advance, to evolve, to discover, to seek, to find, you know, and to find for ourselves. So um, that said, uh, you know, that's just our approach. And um, that's, because personally, I think the grail can be any of these things, or I also think the grail could be all of these things. And I think that that's also very important approach to take. Is is it possible that the reason why all these stories, in fact, I, I pose this question, and I, I'm going to say the answer to it is yes, it's possible, but I pose this question, is it possible that the reason why all of these stories exist and why there's so many different versions of what the grail actually is and was um, is, 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 are so dramatic, is it, is it possible that it could be all of these things? Yes, it's possible that all of these things could exist and all these things could be connected and that there could be an interconnection between them. In fact, there are stories um, and, and, and legends of Mary Magdalene and her journey to southern France, and Philip's going to tell a little bit of some of the history now of Mary Magdalene here in a minute, um, but there are stories of her and her journey to southern France and bringing bringing with her several sacred objects of which the, the, the chalice from the Last Supper, some kind of other sacred object of some kind, some kind of you know, gospel of, um, of, of Yeshua, some kind of lost book of love perhaps, uh, was, was, was part of one of the, maybe the, the things that she brought with us, uh, the remains of St. Anne. Um, you know, perhaps you know, she may have been carrying a child in some of those stories. You know, again, getting into the, the, the legends regarding the grail being Mary Magdalene and a bloodline uh, that was a holy bloodline between her and Yeshua. 
so there's legends that actually ties them all together even. You know, so we don't want to um, limit them to just being one or the other. Uh, we want to stay open and, and ultimately the and you part of this conversation is have you do your own inner exploration and maybe even outer quest, right? You know, maybe going on a sacred quest like ours that we're going to be doing in September or some other kind of your own and, and, and having it be revealed to you. Because this is one of the things that we're discovering about Mary Magdalene is that she was put into a box and, and um, it's really important to take her out of that box. What I'd like to do now is invite Philip to tell us some of the history uh, pertaining to Mary Magdalene. I'll get into what I was going to talk about um, regarding Margaret Starbird a little later, Philip. Okay. So, um, you know what a lot of us know, again, I, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church and, um, you know, not, not too much actually mentioned in the, in the um, Protestant tradition about Mary Magdalene. Um, she's, of course, honored in all the Gospels. She was there every time uh, women are mentioned around Jesus. She's always mentioned and often mentioned first. She was the first person to see Jesus when he uh, arose, which is very prominent. Because of that, and for other reasons, she's called the apostle to the apostle, the equal of the apostles. So in early Christianity, she was very prominent. She was very likely, from the information that people have uh, been able to research, a woman of we, uh, excuse me, a woman of means, who traveled with the apostles, was one of the apostles, uh, helped even fund some of their journeys and so forth, and um, very close to Jesus. Um, in the early church, once Jesus had uh, had died and ascended, and the early church was without one leader, there were several leaders, one of whom was Mary Magdalene. Peter, of course, was a leader. James was also a leader. And um, I'll just briefly touch on it at this point. We'll mention it again, but there are Gospels that are not in the current Bible, but there were Gospels that were followed by early Christians, uh, different groups of Christians, some of which specifically talked about uh, Mary Magdalene as one of the most or the most prominent Christian leader at the time and that she received uh, special instruction from Jesus and, and that there was some friction possibly between her and Peter. These are a matter of record. These were uh, Gospels that were discovered fairly recently within the 1800s and 1900s and, and even more recently. There was a fragment called the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, which was has been um, talked about in the last couple of years, very controversial. But in any event, she was a, a visionary leader, um, disciple of Jesus, and one of the first leaders of Christianity. Now, it's also admitted there's different um, stories about what happened to her and the rest of her life after Jesus' death, but one of the most prominent, and this is even in Catholic.org, which is a Catholic um, website, that she was, uh, they said, put on a boat without sails or along with some other uh, people, including uh, the body of St. Anne, and sent drifting out to sea in the Mediterranean and landed on the shores of France. Of course, if you go around the, the Mediterranean, you get to um, Israel, Palestine, and so forth and so on. So if you're on a boat in the Mediterranean, you could very easily uh, end up in France, which she did and where she spent the last 30 years of her life. So her journey from being a very intimate disciple of Jesus Christ 
uh, early leader of the Christian church, uh, went to France and spent 30 years traveling, preaching there, is something that even a lot of uh, Christians aren't aware of. Now, something happened in the 6th century, unfortunately, which changed the way that Mary Magdalene was viewed. There was a pope, Pope Gregory, in 591 A.D., who gave a homily or a talk, and in that homily he connected Mary Magdalene with uh, a prostitute that was in the Bible. Uh, later, it was scholars determined that there was really no connection, but because he had made that connection and made her as a prostitute, then that legend, that idea about her, has gone on for literally 1,500 years. That's why most, even the great works of art of Mary Magdalene in the past and the Renaissance and so forth and so on, a lot of them show her naked or a lot of them show her as seductive. Um, and so that portrayal of her in the 6th century as a prostitute, which was inaccurate, for whatever reason it was done, I'm not sure why, but it went on and on and on until 1969, 1,378 years later, the Vatican uh, corrected that. Not publicly, not directly publicly, but without commenting on his reason for doing it, they rejected it by separating the sinful woman in the Gospel of Luke from Mary Magdalene. So that... And again, so that's the 20th century, and now we're in the 21st century when that took place, so all of a sudden she's, as Anna said, taken out of the box of being a prostitute, which she was not, uh, and the church admitted that that was a mistake. And then there were these Gospels that were found, including the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, uh, this recent fragment uh, that uh, Karen King of Harvard has, all of these things which paint a different side of Mary Magdalene, so people are curious. They're wondering who she was, what was her role, and that kind of brings us up to the, the current time. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, 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 the history of this is so fascinating to me. I mean, we've, we've been just super fascinated in learning as much about Mary Magdalene and her history as, as possible, and um, <clears throat> it never... I, I was... You know, both of us were raised within Christianity. I became an interfaith minister later in my life, and you started doing interfaith work later in your life as well. And neither one of us knew any of these things from our upbringing within Christianity, right? <coughs> so it was pretty eye-opening to us and pretty eye-opening to a lot of people. And, and we feel personally a, a, a calling to, um, you know, try to uh, help people explore these mysteries, understand more about uh, you know, some of the truth that can be learned, that can be uncovered, um, and learn some more about the, the, the her story, right, her story. Um, because there's history, and history in many ways has um, not done Mary Magdalene a favor, you know, because history, uh, the, the, his story, uh, the, the, the male version of the story has not really portrayed Mary Magdalene in a very positive light or really told uh, her story. And um, history left out a lot of things about her. And now the history is being uh, corrected by bringing back in her story. But her story was kept alive. And usually her story uh, was where the legends, right, the, the, the things that are called um, legends or myths or lores, this is where her story is often told. So that's why it's important to, well, what, what do all the different legends say? What do all of the, you know, the, the different stories 
say. Um, you know, there's the there's the, there's the part that. Um, you know, is, is pretty widely accepted um, that she did travel to France and that she did live in southern France and that she spent the rest of her life there. Um, however, uh, beyond that, there's not much information in history, right, his story. But when you look at her story and you look at the legends um, and the, the, the myths and the stories that have kind of spread through the word of mouth, uh, telling of the stories um, that all throughout the southern region of France, she was taught, she was um, legend to have and story to have traveled, not just gone to one place and one place only, according to those legends. And nor do I personally feel that that would be the thing that a woman of her um, of her nature and just how she's even described, even in the canonical scriptures, even if you don't bring in any of the other uh, gospels, the the, the lost gospels or the Alternative, the, the alternative gospels. Um, if you don't bring in any of those, then you just keep to the canon of the one, the, the scriptures that are in the canon scriptures. They even point to uh, describe a woman who would not just be somebody who would kind of just sit around uh, for. 30, 40 years of her life, uh, and who was very driven um, to uh, spread the spread the good news and spread the the teachings. So when you look to her story, the legends and the stories in southern France, they're pretty widespread all throughout. Um, it's said that she traveled all throughout the Provence region and all throughout the Languedoc region of southern France, and that she um, taught as much as she could, and whatever she was, that whatever it was that was with her was being protected, um, but it was also um, something that was, uh, you know, again, whatever the, the, the sacred objects and the sacred, um, you know, presence was that was with her, uh, it was also being shared with some of the people that she was coming into interaction with. And her teachings remain, and there's a whole version of Christianity that began to emerge in southern France that um, claims to have been coming from some of the, the the root teachings of Mary Magdalene, perhaps other influences were involved in those uh, teachings as well. But uh, there's there is a connection that is claimed to you know from that evolution from some of Mary Magdalene's teachings when we come in to talk about the Cathars, which we don't really have time to do today. Where there's actually going to be a whole teleconference um, dedicated to the Cathars and um, the, the the Knights Templars and kind of explaining more about who they were. So um, very, very fascinating uh, history about um, uh, when you look at uh, when, when you look at more uh, what, well, history gets this is what I want to say. History gets elaborated upon when you throw in her story. Now the downside of all of that is a lot of what that word of mouth, her story um, evolved to eventually became heresy, and um, her story evolved into her, her say, and that evolved into heresy. And unfortunately, then a whole other kind of chapter began of trying to kind of close down and shut down some of the information uh, and, and insight into Mary Magdalene that perhaps we could have uh, had some of that uh, attempts of not suppressing it and shutting it down uh, due to calling it heresy had happened. Um, but we'll talk about more of that again when it comes time to talking about the Cathars. Uh, so if you look on the mysticalfrance.com 
website where the teleconferences page is. If that sounds of interest to you, um, make sure that you're attending the, the teleconference or listening to the recording for the teleconference pertaining to the Cathars. Because we'll even talk about more there about um, how those uh, those, the, the, those people, the Cathar people, uh, trace their, um, some of their teachings and some of their lineage directly back to uh, what Mary Magdalene taught. But regardless, as Philip said, there's uh, one thing that now, even in the retraction that uh, the Catholic Church made when they tried to set the record straight and say that she wasn't a prostitute back in 1969, when they um, you know, kind of put on the back page, so to speak, of the newspaper <laughs> um, that she wasn't a prostitute and that they they claimed her to be an apostle to the apostles. And this is actually her formal title um, you know, that, that, that is still um, now to this day now being used as her formal title, an apostle to the apostles. That's a great position uh, to hold and, and, and something that really tells us a lot about her. Um, and I often relate to her as the beloved companion as well because there's no doubt in our minds um, when you look at all of the stories that are out there, all of the myths, all of the legends, history, and her story that um, she was a, a close companion and a beloved companion of Yeshua. And then you get into the stories and the legends which say that she may have been such a beloved companion, she may have been so beloved that she may have actually been the wife of Yeshua and um, that uh, there may have actually been a bloodline, a holy bloodline that came, came about as a result of that. And of course there are books today that um, have really uh, propagated interest in Mary Magdalene that um, have been telling that story. Uh, say, for example, The Da Vinci Code, written by Dan Brown, um, that's gotten a lot of people's interest in looking at what, what are some of those legends. Hey, where is some, where is some of that? Where is that coming from? Where is that whole idea coming from? Holy Blood, Holy Grail, long before the Vinci Code came out. Um, and books by Margaret Starbird. Uh, Margaret Starbird is one of our favorite authors as far as uh, really she's, we see her as a, a, as a scholar. She began, um, you know, she, she began as a Catholic scholar actually who um, was set out to kind of rebuke these things, rebuke some of these stories about Mary Magdalene and rebuke that she was, you know, ever had any kind of um, kind of beloved type of relationship or, or um, you know, um, union type of sacred union with, with, with Yeshua. And in her, the more, she, the more she got into her research, the deeper and deeper she went into her research, she became convinced that there was a beloved connection between them and that there was, um, you know, some sort of sacred union that took place between them. And here's a quote that I'm going to read from Margaret Starbird on Holy Grail and the Sacred Union where she connects the Holy Grail and Mary Magdalene together. It's actually a two-part quote. Uh, here's the first part of the quote. The Holy Grail is a powerful symbol on many levels. The chalice is intimately connected with the sacred cauldron of creativity so implicitly illustrated by the Vesica Pisces, which is also the symbol irre irrevocably associated with Mary the Magdalene. When the bride is restored, the wasteland is healed, and the crops and the herds thrive, the desert blooms. This is the age-old promise inherent in the paradigm of sacred union, the partnership of the archetypal bride and the archetypal bridegroom. The grail promises are echoes of a sacred union long replaced within Christian mythology. 
So she's talking about the Grail and the stories of the Grail actually from her perspective here, Margaret Starber's perspective here, um, actually being uh, descriptive of an archetypal bride and an archetypal bridegroom of Mary Magdalene and Yeshua and that their union, their sacred union, um, again tying it into the healing of the wasteland, the healing of the world, the healing of uh, the the the, 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 the harmful, hurtful, um, you know, things that, are, that have happened in the world. So uh, that's Margaret Starbird's uh, quote that I wanted to share with all of you. And she's got a lot more in her writings about this. If you're uh, already familiar with her, you may already be familiar with her books. Um, and if you're not, then um, one of her books that's most well-known is um, Woman with the Alabaster Jar. And uh, we highly recommend that. Um, and that, that that is a nonfiction book. There's been some fiction books. Uh, there's been some nonfiction books in recent days that have really piqued this uh, curiosity. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, especially when the Da Vinci Code came out, there was this huge interest in like, whoa, you mean the Grail and Mary Magdalene, they could be way more than what we thought that they could be? And, and huge interest in some of these other legends and some of these other stories that exist. And also a return to uh, the interest in learning more about, well, was there a bloodline? And, and of course, there's no proof there was, but there's no proof that there wasn't either. There's no proof that um, there was and there's no proof that there wasn't. Uh, so there's just all of these different stories and there's all, you know, her say and there's history and, you know, there's the combination of the two and there's our place in that. You know, there, the, when it comes to the bloodline, um, there's a lot of history even um, to, to explore with that. And I think that there's a lot of circumstantial uh, evidence, so to speak. You know, like, for example, the Merovingian kings and the Merovingian kings, from everything that I've read about them and everything that I've learned about them, they claim to be the direct descendants. They were, they were Merovingian kings of France. They weren't the only kings of France. There were also kings from other descendancies. But the Merovingians were a group of kings of France that claimed from the very beginning to be the bloodline and the descendants of Yeshua and Mary Magdalene and um, thus claimed themselves to be the rightful kings of France um, as a result of that descend of being those descendants. And they also have a direct, the Merovingians also have a direct con con connection to the Black Madonna. Now the Black Madonna is of, of, of France and all throughout Europe they eventually spread. Um, the, the Merovingians believed and taught and told and identified that the Black Madonnas were Mary Magdalene according to the Merovingians. Again, these um, kings who uh, claim to be the direct descendants of the bloodline of, of, of Mary Magdalene and Yeshua, and that the Black Madonna was actually uh, not Mother Mary, but the Black Madonna was Mary Magdalene. So we're going to talk more about the, uh, the Black Madonna actually in the, in the next uh, teleconference that we do on southern France. So the, the next one we're going to do in this series is going to be um, uh, about our northern France retreat. So that will be in two weeks from now because we're kind of alternating. Every two weeks we're doing one on the northern France and every two weeks we're doing one on southern France. Um, and then two weeks later we're doing one on southern France. So uh, it'll be, uh, like I said, the one that is called, um, I don't have it right here in front of me, but I think it's called the Magdalene, the, the Sacred Feminine, and the, Divine, and the Great Goddess, where we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the Black Madonnas there in that one because that's a whole other fascinating thing uh, that is associated with uh, Mary Magdalene through some of these stories and through some of these, these legends. Um, 
and through the, the Merovingians' claims. So uh, there's, there's just some interesting mystery and intrigue to explore and discover and to seek and to quest uh, when it regards to the, the, the Black Madonnas and all of Mary Magdalene's history. So that said, Phil, is there anything further that you wanted to share in regards to um, anything that I was just saying? Um, I just wanted to point out that, you know, as you said, a lot of this is um, things that we haven't commonly heard or some people doubt, but when you really look into it, for example, when we went to Chartres Cathedral in France, which is one of the most beautiful and amazing cathedrals in the world, and it's still you know, run by the Catholic Church and everything, in one of the windows, one of the stained glass windows, it's the window of Mary Magdalene, and it has a number of scenes of her life, and one of the scenes is very clearly her getting off a boat in France. And that's, in, that's from 1205 A.D. So some people think, oh, you know, Dan well, Brown... The window wrote, is, yeah. Yeah, the window. So yeah. some people thought Dan Brown wrote this fiction, made up all this stuff. Well, not... Of course, The Da Vinci Code is a fiction. But when you look into some of the uh, underlying themes of books like The Da Vinci Code or books by Catherine McGowan and so forth and so on, you see that there's a substance to them. It's not just something somebody... A new age dream somebody came up with these things and again so the idea is not to you know just come up with fantastic ideas or wish that this could be so forth and so on it's looking back and as you said scholars like margaret starbird and others have brought these to the forefront and really i mean here here's the church again i grew up baptist you grew up catholic uh, we were both very involved in our churches and if you think about it, I always heard that the disciples of Jesus, most of them ended up getting martyred or, you know, pretty much you, you hear about all the disciples, but you don't hear people about Mary Magdalene. And yet, apparently, she outlived all of them, and she continued the mission of Jesus for 30 years. Isn't that mm -hmm. odd? Don't you think that's a little strange? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, hey, let's dream up some far-out story so we can, you know, see the world the way we want to see it. No, we're just trying to, like look at the reality, and, and, in, and, and in that way, again, bringing it back to the grail, we're looking for a restoration of all these, these opposites. For example, the male and female. In, in, the, in the Hebrew tradition, it wasn't just God, El. It was El and Asherah. There was masculine and feminine there. Mm -hmm. All the great traditions of the world, when you look back, there was a history that included the divine feminine, and over time, with organized anything, organized any church or company or whatever, things tend to veer off course based on who's been dominating in that organization. And because most of the great uh, uh, religious traditions of times have been, for one reason or another, dominated by men, that feminine part has been suppressed to the detriment of the world, including today. So the idea is, and, and as you said, Mary Magdalene is an archetype for the divine feminine, as is Sophia in the Orthodox tradition, El and Asherah in the, pre, in the early Jewish tradition. And it's just a matter of bringing those back to where they belong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Good point. Thank you for making that point. And when you look at the, I want to go back to just real quickly um, touching upon the other scriptures, right? There's the canonical gospels. Those are the ones at the Council of Nicaea, um, which is a whole other story about the Council of Nicaea. You know, they, they met and they, there were many, many sacred gospels, sacred books within Christianity at that time that were being used. And um, they decided uh, which ones. It was a group of all men um, headed up by Constantine and, uh, you know, in order to create uh, kind of the leadership of Rome over Christianity at that time. And so they chose which Gospels uh, they wanted to keep and which ones they wanted to throw out, which ones they wanted to say, these ones are valid and these are real and which ones they wanted to throw out. And, of course, we can... Um, we can we, we can say that they chose really really wonderful ones and everything that they chose is fantastic. But when you look at some of the ones that they threw out, you're like, well, why did they leave this out? Because it seems like there's some other important pieces here. Um, and so there's other scriptures, there's other gospels other than the ones that became the official canon, uh, that became the official Bible um, that we now know and call the Bible, which is the canon scriptures, the canonical scriptures um, that exist and some of them like Philip Phillips mentioned a few of them um, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene was discovered what was it 1896 Philip um, and yeah. it's uh, dated back to do you have the information there about the history I, of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene yeah I don't have it at my fingertips yeah I think it, it, it dates back in definitely into the, the the early first century right it's when they when they when they dated it um, it was found and discovered in 1896 but it did didn't really become widely released until right around the same time that another group got released um, because much later uh, the Nag Hammadi texts were found and when the Nag Hammadi texts were found there was a, a lot of other gospels like the Gospel of Philip and um, the the the, the the Gospel of Thomas, some of the other things that you already mentioned, Philip. Mm -hmm. There were several, several that were in there, and they're called. They, they refer to them as the Gnostic Gospels. We don't personally uh, use that terminology very much because we think that there's there's so much more to them than even what the word Gnostic can sometimes put it into a different box, right? And so we don't want to put these things in a box. We want us to explore them outside the box and look at them outside the box that 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 keeps us limited in our ideologies and our thinking. So. Um, they're really fascinating. Um, and then uh, just recently, I, I don't have the exact date here in front of me, um, there was another release, um, not of the original text, because she still says that she holds on to the original text in order to preserve it, uh, that, her, that her family uh, basically was protector of it for a very long time, and her family went through great hardships in order to protect it. Uh, but there was a, a translation um, of a Gospel of Mary Magdalene and that was released through the publication of a book called The Gospel of the Beloved Companion, um, which is a, uh, she calls it an unabridged or un, un, un um, I think unabridged version, I don't have it in front of me, I wish I did, an unabridged version of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene that was kept in her family's care in the southern uh, Languedoc region of southern France. And um, that, that tells an amazing story, including 
filling in some of the blanks from the version that was found in 1896. Uh, so fascinating to read, uh, very important if you feel a connection to, Art, to Mary Magdalene, if you feel a connection to these great mysteries and, and, and you want to you know, personally quest and seek and explore more, and that's what we're encouraging everybody to do. Uh, there's great works of fiction uh, where you can explore more, uh, and there's also great uh, 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 gospels and things that have been released over the years. And the newest one uh, that came out when we were on the retreat, so that was another synchronicity, wasn't it, Philip? When we were in southern France, on this quest in southern France, um, learning about Mary Magdalene, traveling to some of these sacred sites that are associated with her in the Cathar country, Languedoc region is called Cathar country, there was a release of... um, the, this little tiny little piece of was it papyrus that it was written on? Yeah. I'm not quite sure what the what the type of paper was that it was mm-hmm. written on, but um, it was. Remember, you mentioned it a little while ago, Philip. What, what, what was it called? The Gospel of Jesus' Wife. That's what uh, Karen calls it, right? Karen Armstrong. No, Karen Kling, King. Karen King. I'm sorry, Karen King. Yeah. Harvard professor. Harvard. Yeah, that's it's. Um, it was. It, she made a presentation in Rome at the same time that we were in France revealing it, and it's very controversial. Even to this day, there's people arguing vociferously on both sides. Some say it's a fake. Some say it's a mm-hmm. But the, and, and it's kind of interesting, too, because whatever it is, it shows how strong the feelings are about this, um, about the issue of Jesus and, and, and the feminine, you might say, in, in Christianity. So mm-hmm. that's going to go and did, on And isn't there a brand new documentary that just got yeah. released that you watched the other night? Yeah, it came out on May 1st on the, um, I think it was Smithsonian Channel. Yeah, on the Smithsonian good. Channel documentary Actually. called mm-hmm. Gospel of Jesus' Wife, right? Um, I think that was the name of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of one of the films that I like to recommend to people that um, uh, I think I, I need to put the link on the website to this is um, the um, the Secrets of Mary Magdalene that we feel that that tells a nice uh, you know a lot of broad kind of like our thing here is broad let's just look at everything and take 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 out take out the boxes and take her out of the boxes and not put her into any more boxes but just look at what are, what are all the possibilities what are all of the stories about her and 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 who might she be and 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 let that be revealed uh, to us and through us. Yeah, it's called the Secrets of Mary Magdalene. So on our website, mysticalfrance.com, there's a facts and resources page uh, in which there are um, articles that are linked there um, about the uh, Cathar country, the Cathar region, the Languedoc region, and of course all this uh, anything and everything that pertains to the Cathars and the Languedoc is steeped in some of these legends and mysteries and stories pertaining to the Holy Grail and Mary Magdalene. And um, there's also some um, books that are linked on there uh, that we recommend, both fiction books that are linked uh, and nonfiction books that are linked. Uh, So if these subjects are intriguing to you and you want to read more, not everything we've mentioned today is up on the site, but there's even stuff we haven't mentioned today that is on there. Um, So that's mysticalfrance.com on the facts and resources page. So now I'm going to segue into talking a little bit about where we're going to be going and what we're going to be doing in our upcoming retreat in this region. Um, we're going to go to Cathar country in the Languedoc region of southern France again. Uh, we just feel called to go back and we know that each journey reveals even more. Uh, our mystical France 
south. We have actually three retreats we've organized in France this year. Uh, the Mystical France South is actually the retreat that is titled the Magdalene, the Grail, and You. So the Mystical France South retreat is titled the Magdalene, the Grail, and You. And it is the Mystical France South retreat where we will be going September 18th through 25th of this year, so September 18th through 25th, 2014, and we'll be going to a lot of these places that we've been talking about already and that I'm going to share a little bit more uh, about where where we're actually going to be going and even giving kind of a day-to-day uh, type of itinerary because it's one of the things that I'm behind schedule on getting out on the website is I don't really have a day-to-day itinerary put on there yet, but every place that we are going is, is listed on the description for that retreat. Um, so it's uh, there, there's a lot of information on the site and there's a lot still to come, but there's there's still the vast majority of what you need to know is already up here. Um, so if if, if you're interested in learning more about the retreat, uh, you can ask questions after we're done with the call, but you can also uh, email me um, and you can uh, call me and that contact information is also available up on the site. Uh, so when you're on the site, uh, you're, wanting, you're wanting to look at the Mystical France South, the, Ma- the, the, the Magdalene, the Grail, and you if this is your subject of interest, uh, be sure to check out the registration page because it tells you everything that the retreat includes and doesn't include. Um, And there's several things. There's testimonials. There's the photo galleries in which we got some awesome pictures of some of the places that we've been talking about. And there's also about our program. And let me just say that before I talk about where we're going to be going. Um, When we leave retreats, Philip and I, we, especially the sacred places such as these, we leave them as um, modern-day pilgrimages. And um, the, the whole idea is to create a spiritual program that people can participate in to whatever degree they want to participate in it. Some people um, may choose to only participate in parts of the spiritual program and have free time or a, a kind of alone time, uh, dur- and it's completely optional. However much you want to participate in the things that are offered is fine. And our approach, even though we're going to places that um, a lot of the places there's still a very strong Catholic presence. Uh, we're going to places where, you know, there's a, you know, strongly all of these legends are associated with Christianity. Our approach is a very ecumenical, non-sectarian, interfaith uh, approach, and so it's really not religious as much as it is spiritual. And that's the way we like to define what we do and and how we do it. Um, and really, our mission is to help people get closer in their personal relationship with the divine, right? So whatever your personal relationship with it is with the divine and, and to have a personal experience with any or all of these things, right? Without us telling you what to think or what to believe or, you know, uh, just helping use our, we see our role as just being the guides, you know, just guiding and just facilitating and creating certain facilitation types of experiences for you to have um, as deep a connection uh, with the quest uh, as possible, right? And again, it's optional as to how much of that, you, uh, how much of that facilitation you want to take advantage of. Uh, daily, there will be daily meditations. Uh, we're going to be staying when we're in Cathar country in the southern Languedoc region, um, and we're going to be staying south, a little south of Kion, and um, it's a, a wonderful. Um, 
I would call it more of a retreat center, but they call themselves a hotel uh, that's called Maison Templare, uh, House of the Templar. And uh, it has a, um, not only is it very sweet, quaint, uh, beautiful, you know, in, in the middle of the um, southern France uh, foothills of the Pyrenees, and we're surrounded, when we're in this, uh, in this hotel, we're surrounded, it's small, it's a very small hotel that, um, like I said, I, I would call it more like a retreat center. It's so personal. There's a very personal feel to it, and the people there are very, very personal. But when we're there, we're surrounded by these beautiful mountains that are the foothills of the Pyrenees, the beautiful Pyrenees mountains. And um, when we're there, we have access to, uh, we'll have daily access to their conference room. And um, so the mornings will start out, of course, um, in the Languedoc region for the southern France retreat. All of the meals will be included um, because the, the, the coordinators that we work with, uh, both at the hotel as well as the, um, um, we have a tour operator that will be assisting us and working with us in southern France. That tour operator is called Barinka Tours and Travel. And Peter and Annika are just uh, wonderful tour guides and tour operators. And they'll be handling the coordination of all of the meals and all of the transportation. Uh, so actually, literally everything is included. It's a, the one in southern France, uh, that retreat is an all-inclusive retreat. Once you get yourself there, which is the airfare is the only thing not included, it becomes all-inclusive. All transportation on the ground will be included. All of the excursions will be included. All the pilgrimage program that we're offering will be included. All the accommodations at the hotel, all meals will be included. So it's an all-inclusive once once you get the uh, the flight in and out, the round-trip ticket, uh, then it becomes all-inclusive at that point. But in the mornings, we're going to be um, at the hotel, and there's a, there's a wonderful conference room, which I would really call more of a meditation hall. Uh, it's quite beautiful. Um, they have these beautiful, um, you know, I, I would call them interfaith altars. They have sacred objects, really, from from spiritual traditions of all over the world that that are uh, uh, in this um, this conference room and meditation hall. And so we'll start each morning again. If people want to participate, if not, you're welcome to sleep in or whatever. You know, go for a walk, whatever you'd like to do. Um, but we'll start by offering to everybody in a morning meditation, a morning circle. There's usually uh, some amount of dream work and dream groups that we facilitate uh, throughout the course of the week. It may not be daily. It just depends. Uh, we kind of go with the flow of like how much people are dreaming and whether it's uh, needed or not. Um, and uh, we will also be doing some um, you know, guided journeys. In addition to guided meditations, we'll be doing some guided journeys. And at one point, uh, so I don't know exactly which day yet I'm going to do it. I'm going to kind of let myself be guided. I'm going to lead a journey that I've been leading now for the last, I don't know, year, year and a half um, that I call the Magdalene Vision Journey. And the Magdalene Vision Journey is, um, I got inspired when I read the Gospel of the Beloved Companion, and I read this vision um, that Mary Magdalene had that's described in the Gospel of the Beloved Companion, um, this elaborate, elaborate vision that she had um, upon the resurrection. It's 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 um, described that, of course, all of the, the Gospels describe that she was the first to see Yeshua at the time of the resurrection. 
Well, only the Gospel of Mary Magdalene describes that she had a vision at that time. And of the Gospels of Mary Magdalene that are out there, of the different versions that are out there, there's only one that goes into really great depth with what that vision is. And that version is called the Gospel of the Loving Companion, which I spoke of earlier. It goes into great detail of mentioning what the details of that vision that Mary Magdalene had that Yeshua gave her at the time of the resurrection was. And so I was so inspired when I read that. I've been leading um, what I, I've been leading shamanic journeying and what I call soul journeys, which are inner journeys that I've evolved from uh, just over the years of leading meditation and leading journeying work. Um, I've been leading a soul journey now that I call the Magdalene Vision Journey, and it leads people through having some of your own experience of some of that vision. So it leads you through some of the steps and the stages of that vision that Mary Magdalene was led through and gives you some of your own experience in some way uh, of that vision. So I call it the Magdalene Vision Soul Journey. And I'll be leading that sometime throughout the course of that week. And again, it'll be a great way to have an inner journey experience to connect with some of the inner truth that can be revealed to you about this. So that's kind of some of the spiritual work or the spiritual program we'll be doing. We'll be doing some ritual, some ceremony periodically, um, some meditation sometimes perhaps at these sacred sites. We'd like to let ourselves be spiritual led and of course everything is optional even going on the outer excursions right so then daily we'll be going out every day on an outer outer journey on an outer excursion out into the mountains and into some of these sacred sites Um, and I'm going to tell us where we're going to go with that but even if you um, feel like you want to just uh, take some time and have some personal time and stay back at the, the hotel during that time you don't even have to go on the outer journeys unless you feel called to do so so really is a very personal even though it's a group trip it's a very personal trip and it's what you're spiritually being called and feeling drawn to do so here's the journeys that we're going to go on um, I'm going to kind of just read through them this is what I'm going to be putting up on the day-by-day itinerary page although there may be some changes I think I have to make two changes here as to the sequence so there may be some changes in the sequence but the uh, day one will be the arrival day um, in this particular retreat everybody will need to be flying in and out of the airport that's in the Languedoc region called Toulouse uh, the city of Toulouse Toulouse France uh, so the Toulouse airport is where we'll all fly in and we'll meet and we'll be picked up by Barinka uh, they have a, a, a van there and um, they'll be picking us up and transporting us uh, down about an hour, hour, 15-minute drive is what I'm anticipating. Uh, don't know exactly for sure. It's what I'm estimating is is, is, is is factual or not. It could be shorter. It could be a little longer. Um, it, they'll drive us down to the Maison Templar um, Retreat Center or Hotel that I was describing to everybody. Uh, and we will just have a, a relaxed evening there. They'll be making us wonderful dinner in the hotel. Uh, we'll have an opening circle pilgrimage orientation presentation in the meeting room that night. And we'll just kind of get familiar with being there and and with each other and, and, and get to know each other a little bit. Um, and then on the second day, uh, after our morning program in the, uh, the, the I'm going to call it the meditation hall there at the hotel, um, after our morning program, the, we're currently, the way I have it written is we're going to do a day trip to Puy Larens. Again, the, the order of these things may change when I finalize it to put it up on the website here soon. Um, but we're going to do a day trip to Puy Larens. And Puy Larens is a, a magical Cathar castle. It, it existed before the Cathars. Um, it's very, very old. 
Um, but the Cathars are part of the major history there. And it's a sacred site associated with the Holy Grail as well as associated with the Cathars. Um, again, another message that I got was that it was a ca- uh, it also was a Grail castle. And, um, you know, the message said, you know, once a Grail castle, always a Grail castle. And this place is a crystal mountain. Uh, Puy Larens is uh, literally this castle that is pe- perched up on top of this mountain and will drive up as far as we can and then we'll walk the rest of the way it is a bit of a hike but not too bad and um it is a crystalline mountain when you're hiking up through there there's veins of quartz crystal that you could just see in the rocks uh and if it's if there's that much quartz crystal visible on the surface of the rocks there's got to be a lot of quartz crystal uh present within there and so that just amplifies the, the 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 crystalline nature of this mountain just amplifies uh and holds the the, the clear pristine energy there one of the things that i was deeply moved by by Pularens was just how clear and pristine um, the energy is there. We'll have time for everybody to explore it, um, and we'll have time for reflection, and, and we'll have time for, um, you know, maybe some kind of group meditation or personal meditation, whatever we uh, decide to do there that seems appropriate at the time. And then um, the next day, our external outings, you know, we'll have our morning program, um, and we'll have a journey to the ancient city of Carcassonne. Um, Philip, are you still on the line? Yeah, I'm here. You, you, would you like to describe something about Carcassonne real quickly for us? Because you know some more of the history of it than I do. Well, Carcassonne is unbelievable. It's one of the, I think it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's one of the only, you know, fully standing medieval cities in Europe. It's just gorgeous. So from a historical and uh, intellectual perspective is it's mind boggling. You know, just streets of cobblestone, everything there is, is medieval. It's just beautiful. And, and very, very old. Um, and this is where the Chateau Comtal is, the, uh, the the place that I got the message to go to and that I told about in my story. It's a, it's a castle within the walls of this ancient city or cité of Carcassonne. And it's I described it earlier as like it, it, the pictures make it look like a Camelot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely amazing. Yeah. So the pictures make it look like a, a, a Camelot. So we'll have time. Actually, we're 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 trying not to put too many places into the schedule each day, so that we can have time to explore each one of these places. There's a lot to explore. Uh, in this 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 ancient city is very large. So not, it has a castle within it. And that tells you how large it is. There's actually a, a, a wonderful cathedral there that we'll have time to explore and oh, go through as well. Incredible. So it has has a castle within it. It has a cathedral within it, within the walls of the ancient city, and it has like a whole little town and village with shops and I think there's even like hotels and things that are in it. So yeah. the, the, we'll have lunch in it, you know, which will be included from Barinka organizing that for us. So there's a lot to explore hey, Anna, in this uh, I ancient. Just, I just city. want to make a little comment because you mentioned the food. The the organizers of this, uh, you know, the tour the tour operators. Uh, Peter's the name of the gentleman. He is, I mean, my God, the food is unbelievable. He, he put so much effort. I mean, people who have different dietary restrictions or whatever, he was so on top of the food everywhere we went. And the food is 
astounding. <laughs> the food in France is astounding, in. but we particularly was, liked yeah. the food that they organized for us. Unbe- yes. Okay, so then the next day, um, again, we'll have the morning program, we'll have uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, all those things there will be included. Uh, we'll have a, a, a wonderful day trip to the cave that I was talking about, um, the cave of uh, at the Gorge de Galamos. So it's a beautiful um, natural, just a natural setting alone is worth going to and visiting because, again, we're in the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains, and so it's this deep gorge that um, is just stunningly beautiful from its natural aesthetics. Uh, but then there's the cave, the, ca- the cave that is legend for Mary Magdalene to have taught within uh, that is there. And inside the cave, much later on, much later on in history, it became a hermitage to St. Anthony. And so they actually have built... Um, uh, inside the cave, uh, a little um, chapel of sorts. I would call it a chapel. There's an altar there. There's um, there's benches that are there. Uh, the, the sacred well that was there, the same sacred well that would have been there when Mary Magdalene was teaching, uh, that's very, very old and that was even, again, a lot of these sites we're going to be going to were, were sacred before Mary Magdalene's time, before the Cathars, and before uh, they were sacred to the Celtic people that lived all throughout this region because this region has an ancient ancient history long before it was France and known as southern France long before it was known as Occitania or the Languedoc it was called Gaul this is the ancient region of Gaul so this is a cave that's been very sacred for a long time which is probably one of the reasons why if Mary Magdalene indeed did teach there which I personally felt a very strong resonance of her presence there um, that, that that was the reason why she was probably drawn to that particular cave and and um, we'll uh, be doing some uh, prayer and some meditation, and we'll be uh, kind of taking some of the water from the sacred well and placing it on us. So it's a very healing water, um, and we'll be uh, getting a, a very special, um, you know, opportunity to to meditate in this uh, and, and do some prayer, personal time and reflection uh, in this sacred place of the Gorge de Galamos. And it's also a, a bit of a hike, but it's well, well worth it. And it's not none of the hikes that we're going on are are um, you know beyond um, you know what what if I can do them physically, other people can do them physically. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So then the next day we're going to uh, probably one of the more well-known sacred sites of the Languedoc region, and that is um, Rennes-le-Chateau. And Rennes-le-Chateau has um, a lot of ancient history associated with it prior to the Christian history that's associated with it. There's a connection directly to the Merovingians and the Merovingian kings there, and um, there's a connection directly to Mary Magdalene there, and there's a lot of mystery. Rennes-le-Chateau is steeped in mystery. It's on the, the, the ley line that is called the Rose Line, and we're going to talk about the ley lines more in the teleconference that will be coming up, the teleconference that we're talking about the ley lines. I think it's called Energy Centers and Ley Lines. Uh, it will be in the series here in a few weeks. Um, there's a ley line that goes all through France and all through Europe. Uh, it's, a, it's an energy vortex line in the earth. It's called the Rose Line. It's thought to be connected to sacred sites associated with Mary Magdalene. And Renlis Chateau is on the Rose Line. And um, 
It has uh, all this mystery and intrigue around it, uh, both current as well as old, uh, and it has a church in it. It's uh, the Church of Mary Magdalene. It's very unique and very different. Um, in fact, I believe it, it's described in the Da Vinci Code, isn't it? I know it's described in Kathleen McGowan's expected one, but isn't, isn't the Renless Chateau Church of Mary Magdalene described in the Da Vinci Code as well, Philip? I don't remember. I don't remember either. It was definitely described in some of the, the books that are out there um, regarding some of these stories and some of these legends. So we'll be going there, and right near there is the Seat of Isis that I was speaking of, this ancient healing well, this ancient healing spring, um, and uh, this oracle seat, the Seat of Isis. So we'll be uh, visiting that the same day that we go to Renla Chateau and uh, experiencing lots of wonderful things pertaining to the Grail and Mary Magdalene and some of these mysterious uh, histories. Um, so then the next day, we'll be going to Montsegur. Um, now, Montsegur, neither Philip and I have gone there yet. We're very excited to be uh, going there on this particular trip. We didn't have time because we only did four days in the Languedoc region last time in 2012. This time, it's seven nights, eight days. So the Mystical South Retreat is seven nights, eight days. And um, the day that we go to Montsegur, um, Montsegur is Steeped in Grail legend um, and Cathar legend. Um, is there anything, Philip, that you wanted to say about Montsegur? I mean, I know it's definitely a place where um, um, Esclarmond, uh, who is the, Ka- the Cathar priest, high priestess, Cathar high priestess, was said to have uh, had the Holy Grail and perhaps even hidden the Holy Grail. We mentioned last time uh, that, that, that there's a whole story about how. Uh, Archangel Michael opened up an opening in the ground and the grail was placed within it and then closed at, at Mount Segor, correct? Right. Well, that's, yeah. That's the legend, yeah. Uh, again, one of the legends that, that, that in, describes it as an object. Okay. But in terms of F. Claire Mullen, she was she's a historical figure. She's probably most well known for a debate she engaged in with a cleric representing the Catholic Church about you know the doctrines of Catholicism and Christ's teachings. Yeah, we'll talk about her more when we talk about the Cathars, okay? Yeah, but I just wanted to mention that. So she's a historical figure. She's definitely connected to Mont Saint-Magur. Excuse me, Mont Saint-Magur. <laughs> Mont Segur. <laughs> Mont Saint-Michel. Uh, Mont Segur. And that was really the last stronghold of the Cathars. And it is believed many, many, many legends about the uh, grail being there, some great treasure, and that it was secretly... Or, uh, taken down off the mountain, off one side of the mountain, before the uh, the French army and the Catholic Church uh, took over that, and, and the people actually went to their death. But uh, so there's a great mystery there. There's some tragedy there, of course, but it's a sacred place, and it's a place that I think um, all of us are going to have uh, quite a deep experience. So um, I'm looking for Yeah, and um, we may actually, if, uh, I, I think there'll be time, but we actually may get a chance to, um, in the little village that's there at the base of Mount Segur, be able to visit one of the Black Madonnas that is there too. So that day, the day we go to Mount Segur and do the hike up to that Grail Castle, um, is a day we may be seeing one of our first Black Madonnas on the Southern France tour as well. Great. 
So then the next day, we're definitely going to be seeing one of the Black Madonnas in the southern region of France, in the Languedoc region. The Black Madonna of Lemu will be uh, going to visit uh, Lemu and the healing springs of Lemu and the Black Madonna of Lemu, of which there's a lot of uh, great history around the Black Madonna of, of Lemu. Uh, her story is quite an amazing story about how she was uh, rediscovered uh, by a farmer in the field uh, and and uh, when when he um, uh, he had to move her, and so when he moved her, what, what, how does what, the story go exactly? She she ends up back in the field, right? Yeah, she kept in back in the same place. So they yeah, she kept returning back to the same place. So that like two two or three times, I think yeah. the story says that she she that she was removed from that place, and then she was she reappeared back in that same place where she was found and discovered. So eventually, they just kept her there, and they built the uh, the church that now exists there, and the Black Madonna of Lemu is there, um, and uh, there's a great history about her. Um, and then uh, since that is uh, a short trip, we'll be able to combine that uh, with uh, a trip to Alet Leban for a thermal spa. Uh, we're going to be able to, uh, if, if all goes well, if the weather is everything accordingly, uh, maybe be able to swim. Uh, the goal is to either be able to swim either in the stream, like there's a there's a river with a small stream that people can get into, or if the spa is open, and again it's questionable weather-wise. Usually they determine that by the temperatures and things like that that time of the year. Um, maybe even being able to go into the thermal spa. So either the stream or the thermal spa, some of the healing waters of Alet Leban, and also the Alet Leban Abbey, uh, which has a tower of um, Saint Michael and a tower of Mary Magdalene. Uh, and then we'll finish by in in Alet so all these things are in this one little village uh, by visiting a place called the Angel Gallery uh, as kind of our, our last trip. So the Black Madonna of Lemu, um, the Healing Waters of Alet Leban, uh, the Alet Leban Abbey, Abbey with the Tower of St. Michael and the Tower of Mary Magdalene, and the Angel Gallery will be that last day um, as far as the excursions are concerned. So that's where we're going and what we're doing and uh, kind of an overview to give you of the Mystical France South Retreat. Um, we have a special early registration discount that we're offering, and that discount um, is the lowest price that uh, we've, we've ever been able to offer on any of these types of retreats. Uh, and the, the registration, early registration deadline will be coming up in about a month, actually, uh, June 12th is the early registration deadline for getting in on the, the lowest price. The regular price is $32.95, um, and that's for the whole week, all the inclusive, everything we talked about, um, incredible bargain and deal, even at the regular price, and then there's the discounted price of $29.95. And all the registration, including the online registration, where you can actually register online or you can download the registration form online, is on the register page at mysticalfrance.com. So that pretty much completes it. There's more information about Philip and I that are also up there. Uh, and we just want to thank everybody for, uh, for listening. Um, I don't believe there's uh, – we went over our time, and I apologize. I don't believe there's a lot of people left on the call right now. But what we are going to do is um, end the recording and um, then unmute so we can take questions from anybody that is there. <laughs>